church into this building. Um, this time next week, this is going to be the moment in our service as we uh, relaunch Crosspoint Kids where I'm going to essentially say, and so this is coaching, this is kind of preparation for seven days from now, where I'm going to say, all right, this is the moment to release your kids, uh, your elementary age kids, to send them back to the kids wing, and then kids will rise up out of their seats and they will so quietly just walk to the back of the auditorium and it'll be, you know, seamless. No, it won't be seamless probably for the first few weeks. But we will, we will integrate into that new normal for, for us as a church, and I think it's going to be a, a sweet uh, time and a sweet launch and season for us um, in terms of kids' ministry. Uh, we do need volunteers for our kids' ministry, so if that's something that, uh, that you're interested in and able to lean into, there are cards uh, at the back of, of the auditorium on the table with the communion cups, uh, serving cards. You can fill one of those out and just drop it in the offering box and we'll make sure to get in touch with you and, uh, and get you connected to our kids' ministry directors. Um, speaking of sign-up cards, uh, there are also community group cards back there. We're launching community groups as well next Sunday as we relaunch our series into the book of Luke. Um, and by the end of this sermon, I hope that you're compelled to explore community group life because I, I think you'll see uh, some of the, the significance of the impact of what that ministry environment of our church is, is meant to be about and meant to accomplish. And so let me just get into it this morning uh, to try to compel you to that end. Uh, if we haven't met, by the way, my name's Jamie. Uh, I'm the pastor elder who gets to do most of the preaching around here. If you've been around for just a few weeks, you would not know that uh, as we've had guest preachers come in throughout the month of August. Dear friends, brothers, pastor, elders of other Acts 29 uh, churches who have faithfully preached God's word, proclaimed God's gospel, a good reminder to me and I hope to you as well that this thing that we call the church is not built on some cult of personality. It's about Jesus. It's about the glory, the wonder, the hope of the gospel, a gospel that we've heard preached over the past several weeks from the Old Testament and the new Christ in all of Scripture. We've talked about this before, 66 books the Bible is written over the course of nearly 2,000 years by roughly 40 authors, kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, doctors, scholars, written in two main languages, Greek and Hebrew, with a little Aramaic sprinkled in for good measure, made up of historical narratives, songs, poetry, letters, sermons, architectural specifications, genealogies, and on and on we could go. And yet this gloriously diverse book tells one overarching story of redemption with Jesus Christ as the hero that binds it all together. Everything comes back to Jesus. A Jesus that we saw on glorious display last week as we opened up Colossians 1, one of the most Christocentric passages in all of Scripture, a passage in which the Apostle Paul invites us to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. A passage in which the Apostle Paul explicitly declares the hope of the gospel. My, my original plan was actually to jump into Exodus chapter 7 this morning, the story of Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. The miracle of sticks turned to, to snakes with a G.K. Chesterton quote or two calling us to cling to a childlike wonder, to not be too grown up for our own good, a, a beholding sermon, if you will. Behold our God who alone is God, God of wonder, sovereign over creation, proving other so-called gods to be no gods at all, committed to his purposes for his glory, faithful to his promises even when his timing seems off to us, his perfect power displayed in human weakness, 
And then the audible came, so we're going to do that one on another Sunday at some point. As I sat under the preaching of God's word last Sunday, the supremacy of Christ on full display, the explicit gospel preached, Jesus, the eternal God, creator and sustainer of all things, Colossians 1, the incarnate word of God who without ceasing to be God became flesh and dwelt among man, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the God-man, the hope of salvation, having come on a mission to save sinners like you and me, to live the sinless life that we could never live, that he might die the sinner's death, that we deserve to die as our sinless substitute. Three days later, rising bodily from the dead, our sin-conquering, death-defeating, triumphant Savior and King, having made a way where there was no way, that sinners might be reconciled to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Yes, we're far more sinful than we ever imagined, yet we're far more loved than we ever dared dream in Jesus Christ. Now, most of us don't have a a problem shouting a hearty yes and amen when it comes to the supremacy of Christ and the hope of the gospel. If you've been around our church for very long, you know that we are a gospel-preaching, biblically-committed church. It's our confession. And yet, and many of you have heard me say this before, there's a massive difference between confessional theology what we say we believe, what we understand, what we can even articulate. There's a massive difference between our confessional theology and our battleground theology. That which forms our responses when life gets difficult, when the battle for our soul ensues. I was reminded of that this past Sunday as we sat with all those glorious gospel truths. That having good confessional theology is not enough. Our hearts have a tendency to drift from our confessional theology, especially when things get rough. We begin to lend our ears to doubt, which creates a wedge between our confessional theology and our hearts. We doubt God's attributes and character. Is he he really in control? Is he really holding all things together, going back to last week, Colossians 1? Doesn't feel that way. My life seems to be falling apart. We doubt our identity in Christ. Am I really a loved child of God? No longer alienated, again, Colossians 1. On the basis of my circumstances, it feels like God hates me. We we lend our ears to anti-gospels, motivated by fear, doubt, bitterness, anxiety, distrust, and, 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 and there are so many other culprits. We can't help ourselves. We, we must converse with ourselves. Paul David Tripp in his book, Dangerous Calling, which is a book for pastors, but it, it really has a broader application, the quote that I'm about to share with you. He says this. He says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. You are an, in an unending conversation with yourself, he says. You are talking to yourself all the time, interpreting organizing and analyzing what's going on inside you and around you. You may be talking to yourself about why you feel so tired. Or maybe you woke up this morning with a sense of dread and you aren't sure why. Maybe your mind has traveled back to your distant past and for reasons you don't understand, you're recalling events from your early childhood. Perhaps you were surprised by how angry you got at the remark of that coworker. Or maybe you're rehearsing to yourself your schedule for the day. 
Perhaps you are reliving a conversation that didn't go too well. The point, he says, is that you are constantly involved in an internal conversation that greatly influences the things you decide, say, and do. Not just when you're in your car and that person pulls up and they catch you talking to yourself. We do it all the time. You and I are going to proclaim something to ourselves in the midst of the everyday situations and struggles of life. The question is, will, will it be our confessional theology that makes its way down into our hearts or will it be something else? And so with that in mind, I invite you to open up your Bible to Lamentations chapter three. I know you knew we were going to that book this morning. It's probably part of your quiet time. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can track on the screen behind me uh, all of this morning's passage, other passages that we're going to go to, sermon quotes, commentary quotes will all be up there on the screen. But before we jump in, let me, let me go ahead and pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, I can think of no other sermon that my own heart needs to grab hold of this morning, along with my brothers and sisters in this room, those who weren't able to be with us this morning, we as a church collective, God, I pray that our time in the scriptures this morning would fan into flame a desire, a commitment to take the truth that we hold so dear and to aim it at our hearts and the hearts of fellow saints for your glory and for our good and joy. Lord, we're desperate for you this morning. Spirit of God, if you don't move, this is an exercise in futility. But I trust that you will, that this is a means of grace, the preaching of your word among many other means of grace that happen in spaces like these. And so as your word promises, may it not return void this morning. May it rest on our minds and sink down into our hearts deeply that we might walk away different, that we might walk away as soldiers in the war for our souls and the souls of those around us, God. Would you do that great work in, in these few minutes that we have together this morning with the scriptures open? In the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior and King, I pray. Amen. The book of Lamentations, it's written by an eyewitness who survived the terrifying experience of the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the ransacking of the temple, the scattering of the priests, the death and starvation of many in the midst of the siege, the exile of God's people to Babylon. And so with, with the book of Lamentations, you, you get a raw, honest depiction of human emotion. The, the book itself, it, it actually forms an acrostic meaning that the first letter of each stanza, as you work your way through the book, it's a sequential letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So that most scholars agree that, that this is a poetic way, this book of the Bible, of the writer expressing his emotions from A to Z. It's the full gamut of human emotion, this book. In fact, if you read the book of Lamentations from start to finish, you, you begin to see there's not a steady train of thought the author's thoughts and emotions, they're all over the place. Like most of us, when we go through our own uh, incredibly difficult seasons of life, bouncing back and forth between hope and despair, trust and doubt, peace and anxiety. 
the book of Lamentations captures something of the human experience in that regard. The Bible is way more honest than most of us give, give it credit for being. It's why many scholars argue that the book's authorship is anonymous, namely so that we can more readily identify with it, so that we can declare with the author, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction. What, what is it? What does it look like to, to wield the weapon of truth in, in the midst of our own unique struggles, be it sin or doubt or unbelief, spiritual warfare, suffering, etc.? The, the author of Lamentations clearly finds himself in the midst of a fight to believe as evidenced in the language of verses 17 and 18. That's where we're going to pick up. He says in verse 17, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. My soul's filled with anxiety, he says. Can't remember what happiness feels like. I've lost all sense of hope. You ever felt that way? We probably, many of us wouldn't say it if we did. Sadly, even within the church, we feel like we have to hold those things to ourselves. For some of us, those words hit all too close to home. As we find ourselves, maybe even now, maybe even this very morning, in one of those dark nights of the soul, depressed, anxious, hopeless. This is not some trivial moment in this man's life. This is a window into a moment of real pain, real sorrow, real despair, and wonder of wonders. It's been recorded in the scriptures it's a declaration that we don't have to walk in loneliness or shame. God wasn't embarrassed to include this in his word. We can lay bare our sorrows, our frustrations, our questions before the Lord and before his people. Easier said than done, I know. But that's the kind of culture of honesty and transparency that we're fighting to establish and foster as a church. He goes on to say in verse 19, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. He asked God to remember all that he suffered, the bitterness of his experience represented by the, the bitter herbs of wormwood and gall. His soul laid low, having, having sunken down into the pit of darkness. Have you been there? I mean, if you haven't, you will. None of us escapes affliction and sorrow altogether. It comes in different forms, different fashions, different levels, but we all face it. I don't know about you, but again, I'm incredibly grateful for the honesty here. Scripture itself declaring you're not alone. And for some of us, that's one of the greatest things we can hear. You're not the only one. That in and of itself, an encouragement. But let's be, we think that's where the encouragement ends. He goes on in verse 21 to say, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Right? No, notice what happens in the moment that it feels as though all hope is lost for this man. Right in the midst of the, the dark, darkness feeling the darkest. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Literally, in the original translation, this I cause to return to my heart. 
If I'm going to have any hope of having hope, my heart's got to rest in something hope-worthy. In this particular moment of struggle, what is that something? What, what is it that, that in this moment, this man's heart needs to, to rest in? Verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Says who? I mean, what, what basis does he have for making such, such claims? Is he just dreaming up things that he hopes are true? Exodus 34, verse 6. Listen to the similar language. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This idea of who God is, it's not the product of human speculation, but rather divine revelation. How does this man know that the, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, particularly when he feels in his experience as though the love of the Lord is anything but steadfast? Answer, the Bible tells him so. How does this man know that God's mercies never come to an end, particularly when he feels in his experience as though the well of God's mercy has run dry? Answer, the Bible tells him so. How does this man know God's faithfulness is great, particularly when he feels in his experience as though God is anything but faithful to him? Answer, the Bible tells him so. I've said it on more than one occasion that in those dark nights of the soul, we have, we have one of two options. We can interpret God's word and with that, his character through the lens of our circumstances. Because I'm going through blank, God must be blank. Or we can interpret our circumstances through the lens of God's word, which reveals his true character. In the midst of blank, God is who his word says he is. What you have here in Lamentations chapter 3 is the wielding of God's word in the midst of the battle to believe. A man not allowing his personal experience to have the final say-so. It's the grabbing hold of his confessional theology that which he knows is true and can articulate well and calling it to mind. When the anxiety is greatest, when the sorrow is deepest, when the night of the soul is darkest. You see it in the life and experience of Jesus Christ himself in his temptation in the wilderness. In Jesus' case, the whispers of the enemy as if our own inner voices weren't enough to battle with. Calling into question the enemy, the trustworthiness of God's word. Calling into question Jesus' very identity. If you are the son of God. Very same things that, that we're tempted to doubt daily. They're just repackaged differently, form-fitted for each of our own individual doubts and fears. Some of you will understand what I, what I mean when I say that each of us has our own screw tape letter. Or letters, Plural whether authored by the devil himself or our own inner voices. Can you really trust that God is who he says he is? Can you really rely on his character? Are his promises really to be trusted? Do you really believe that, that God loves you? That you're his beloved son or daughter? In Jesus' case, 
Satan even going so far as to quote scripture because yes, the devil himself is skilled at scripture memory. The consummate VBS Bible drill big leaguer. Taking Psalm 91 with Jesus out in the wilderness out of context in an effort to try to destroy the son of God. What does Jesus do? As he finds himself in his own dark night of the soul? Answer, the very same thing that the author of Lamentations does. Three times, Jesus declares God's word in the face of the enemy. Three times, Jesus goes to the book of Deuteronomy in the midst of the battle. Just as the author of Lamentations goes to the book of Exodus in the midst of the bitterness of his affliction. In his letter to the church of of Ephesus, and many of you know this, the Apostle Paul refers to the Bible as the sword of the Spirit. There's a reason for that imagery. The scriptures are to be wielded against the, the forces of evil, Satan the accuser and his army of darkness, to be wielded when, when our inner voices scream the loudest, when our hearts are most in danger of drifting from our confessional theology. I've expressed this in the past, and it's been a while, so I think it's, it's time for a repeat. As a pastor, I, I have two great concerns that, that keep me up at night as it pertains to this idea of warring for our souls. First is the issue of biblical literacy. That if the scriptures are our God-given weapon in the midst of the fight to believe, how terrifying to think of the multitudes who are walking through life with their sword in its sheath. If Jesus needed the scriptures, without divine revelation, Again, we're, we're left with nothing more than human speculation, particularly in moments of weakness, doubt, or fear. We must immerse ourselves in the scriptures if we have any hope of fighting the good fight of faith, a people committed to adding more and more weaponry to the arsenal of truth. It's why we preach the Bible. We have no other weapon. The second concern is this perhaps the greater concern in this place we call the Bible Belt, that it's possible to grow in biblical literacy and yet never call to truth in moments of weakness, temptation, and doubt that which we say we believe. Always on to the next Bible study, the next sermon podcast, the next Christian blog, yet never aiming that truth at our hearts in moments of soul war. Let me say it this way. I've said this before. It's not what I don't know about the Bible that scares me. It's what I do know that I don't call to mind when the darkness is darkest. Coming back to an old Charles Spurgeon quote, Spurgeon once said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And I don't usually argue with Spurgeon, but I would float out a hearty maybe assuming that the person who owns that dilapidated Bible is actually wielding the truth therein. When the anxiety is greatest. When the sorrow is deepest. I would argue that that many of us, maybe what we need to do more than anything else is to slow down. To take one or two truths out of those dilapidated Bibles that we own and start aiming those truths at our hearts with greater intentionality. 
That's what you find in Lamentations chapter 3. A man pulling the blade of truth from its sheath, namely Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, and aiming it at his heart in a moment of hopelessness, a moment of anxiety, a moment of sorrow. Let me say it this way. The author of Lamentations wasn't just after more biblical knowledge when he went through the sermon series on the book of Exodus with his church. He knew that he just might need that truth in the midst of a hopeless situation, an arrow to aim at his sorrowful, despairing heart. It's the very same practice you find in the Psalms. Psalm chapter 42, verse 11. The psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Martin Lloyd-Jones argued from those very words of the psalmist that we need to regularly be grabbing ourselves by the proverbial collar, daily, hourly, by the moment, and saying, listen up, self. This is what you need to be reminded of about God in this moment, self. This is the promise of God that your heart needs to grab hold of right now, self. This is the facet of the gospel that's meant to shine for you in this very moment, self. That's what you see in Lamentations chapter three. A man grabbing himself by the proverbial collar and saying, soul, this is what you need to soak in right now. It's what we mean as a church when we use the language of preaching the gospel to yourself. It's this idea of fighting to believe in the moment. You don't study the book of Jonah and see that God is sovereign over the great fish of the deep and worms and scorching east winds, just so, so you know it, just so you, you, you have that theology squared away. No, it's so when your life's coming unraveled, you can remember the God that's sovereign over great fish of the deep and worms and scorching east winds. And not just preaching the gospel to ourselves, but to each other. Recognizing that the war for the soul is not just a, a war to be fought in isolation, but, but rather alongside fellow saints as we journey to the celestial city. I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm too weak and weary to proclaim the truth that my heart needs to hear to myself. When I need saints to grab me by the proverbial collar, so to speak, and to say, Jamie, this is what your soul needs to rest in right now. To come alongside me like Aaron and her did with Moses and to lift my arms up when I can't lift them up myself. My hope, and what a weird Sunday for a vision casting sermon, Labor Day weekend. We don't waste any Sundays around here. My hope is that our Bibles would be dilapidated, yes and amen, falling apart at the seams because we're wearing them out. But more than that, my hope is that we would be wielders of the truth in those dilapidated Bibles, in those moments when we need to believe them most. Arrows in our quiver that we can aim at our hearts when our hearts fail to buy into what we say we believe. Coming back to this morning's passage, Notice where the author's thoughts take him as he calls to mind the truth of God's word in the midst of despair. Verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, 
I will hope in him. That word portion can also be translated as possession. The author declaring God himself to be his greatest gain. More than hope that God would rescue us from those dark nights of the soul. Hope in God himself, whether he rescues us from our circumstances or not. It's the cry of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel chapter 3, as they stood on the verge of being cast into the fiery furnace for not worshiping Nebuchadnezzar. These are their words. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And this is where it gets good. But if not, and this is real Christianity, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Bigger than our circumstances, we've gained God. We cannot lose. Ecclesiastes chapter three. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. The coming months, I have no idea what they hold for you nor for me. They may be filled with great laughter and dancing to use that Ecclesiastes three language. They may be filled with great weeping and mourning. The question is, will we trace the laughter and dancing to God himself the greatest gift who's greater than all the the good gifts he bestows upon us? Will we see past the sorrows to the God who's sovereign over sorrow, willing and able to sustain us by his grace? God intends to, to draw us closer to himself through both the joys and the sorrows. If we'll see past our circumstances to the gift of God himself, like the author of Lamentations that we, we must pursue happiness in God if we are to be truly and ultimately satisfied, and we must pursue happiness in God if he is to be truly and ultimately glorified in us. It's the language of the Psalms. You see it over and over again. Psalm 41, verses one and two, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Psalm 34, verse 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 43, verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. C.S. Lewis describes God in the Psalms as the all-satisfying object. So that soul war is, is not about using God as a means to worldly happiness, nor making a God out of happiness itself. But rather, as John Piper would say, soul war is about making God our God by seeking after our greatest joy and hope in him. So this is my prayer for us as we close our time in the scriptures this morning. It's that we would not grow in our knowledge of the scriptures and our ability to aim the scriptures at our hearts only to fall short of our greatest happiness and hope in God. It's that our biblical literacy and our soul war would lead us to taste and see that the Lord is good. That we would run to him as the fountain of living water. That we would experience the fullness of joy found in his presence. That the reason it's ultimately worth fighting the good fight of faith is because the spoils of war, of soul war, is the prize of God himself.
That's where we're going as a church. It's what we get into the, the heart of as we move into other ministry environments, when we scatter into living rooms, community groups. It's a, a significant value and, and piece of what we do in that ministry environment is calling to mind the truth and proclaiming it to one another as we desperately need it in those moments. We do that as a rhythm because not a week goes by that somebody in this church doesn't need to be grabbed by the collar, so to speak. And so I, I invite you to, to join, to, to be a part of the war as we've strategized it as a church. You need it and others need it from you.